This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Chris Dearborn. I'm an associate clinical professor here at Suffolk. I run the Suffolk Defenders Clinic and teach classes in criminal procedure and trial practice. Yesterday, the federal district court judge sentenced Catherine Gregg to eight years imprisonment based on her involvement in the very notorious, at this point, Whitey Bulger cases. Just to backtrack a little bit, Mr. Bulger and Greg were essentially on the lam for about 16 years once it was known that he was wanted for a series of homicides in Massachusetts. And Miss Greg has helped harbor him as a fugitive for that 16-year period. What made what happened yesterday interesting and controversial is the full extent of the sentence imposed was very, very severe. And the sort of machinations that led up to that point, I think, are a very interesting topic. As a primer, it's important to understand how sentencing works in the federal courts. The federal courts have sentencing guidelines, which they essentially set up. It's a metric uh, or matrix of categories that are combined to establish what the appropriate sentencing range is. For example, one of the most important principles is the base offender level, which is, as a starting point, is based on the severity of the charge and the maximum penalty. Another category that plays into that matrix is someone's criminal history. In this instance, the only thing that everybody seemed to agree on was that Ms. Gregg had no prior criminal history, which typically is a very good sign when you are looking at what's an appropriate sentence in the federal court. The battleground in this case mathematically anyway, was over the base offense level. The probation department in federal court, in what's known as a pre-sentence report, established a much lower threshold than the government was advocating for, and combining all the different pieces of the formula, they came up with a sentencing range of 27 to 33 months, and the defense agreed with that calculation and asked for something within that range. The government tried to argue in its sentencing memorandum that the base offense level should be significantly higher, I think either 30 or in the low 30s, which dramatically increased the exposure, in their opinion, of Miss Gregg. The judge ultimately decided in favor of the government and also found that there were certain aggravating factors in place. So the sentencing guideline range used to be a much more precise science in terms of what a judge could do and there was less wiggle room for a judge. Under recent United States Supreme Court decisions, there's been more leeway granted to a judge to depart up or down from the guideline range. So whether you view it as the judge agreeing with the government's numbers or departing upward based on aggravating factors, what the judge did in this case was impose a fairly significant sentence. Some of the aggravating factors that the government really focused on were the length of the harboring of the fugitive, the 16-year period, and their impression that Ms. Gregg must have been aware of other things that are relevant in sentencing, for example, taking advantage of vulnerable victims, the presence of weapons and significant amounts of money in California where Gregg and Whitey Bulger were hiding out when he was a fugitive. The defense adamantly disagreed with what the government suggested and called their conclusion that she was aware of all those things as being purely speculative. The judge apparently agreed with the government's conclusions, otherwise the sentence wouldn't have been as severe. One of the things that came up in this case was another sort of battleground was what is the legal involvement of the complaining witness or alleged victims in this case 
We're talking about a bunch of murders, so the putative victim is deceased, but what was allowed under criminal law, both federally and state, is people who are harmed by the crime indirectly have, have standing, if you will. It was a really interesting legal question whether the alleged victims of the homicides, what their level of involvement could be in this case, because obviously Ms. Gregg is not alleged to have killed anybody. She's only alleged to have harbored a fugitive who was alleged to have committed those crimes. That was one battleground that came up. Candidly, I'm, I guess, troubled a little bit by the level of the sentence in this case, because you had the probation department establishing what they thought the appropriate range was, then the government relying on, obviously very persuasively, some possibly very speculative grounds to up the ante, and then the judge sided with the government. My only concern is if the judge in this case, even on a subtextual level, punished Ms. Gregg for conduct that she had nothing to do with. I mean, this is an extraordinarily high-profile case. Mr. Bulger is arguably the most notorious criminal in the history of Massachusetts. And a general principle of criminal law is that we punish people for their conduct, not for their association with people who may have committed other more serious crimes. And I'm a little concerned that what happened in this case may have crept over that line of violating that basic principle. And you can sort of understand from a psychological perspective why there was so much media attention played to this case. The government actually, I think, definitely implicitly, if not explicitly, owned this issue in their arguments and their sentencing memorandum and talked about how high-profile a case it was. If you can sort of step back for a second and imagine that this was harboring a fugitive for less serious crimes and or that the period of aiding the fugitive was a shorter period of time, then... Obviously, Miss Gregg would have been sentenced a lot more leniently, and you can sort of ask the question on both a legal and sort of moral level, if somebody harbors a fugitive for a month as opposed to 15 years, is it nothing more than fortuity that lengthened that period of time, and should they be punished more harshly when what you were trying to punish them for is harboring a fugitive? And so I wonder if the FBI had been on their game a little bit more in this case and they had captured Bulger earlier, if we wouldn't be looking at a totally different sentence being imposed for Miss Gregg. And I guess my question is, why should the sentence be that much more severe because of the length of harboring the fugitive, especially when there's a good argument that the government's own ineptitude contributed to the length of the time? I also am troubled by talking about very speculative things like Miss Gregg's awareness of weapons and money and the fact that the people they took advantage of to obtain false identities were especially vulnerable, according to the government. Two other factors that clearly played in were the idea behind whether you can punish somebody for uncharged bad acts or misconduct. And the government made a big deal of the fact that there were other crimes that she could have been charged with but they didn't charge her with, or other misconduct that occurred that was arguably criminal of nature. That's also troubling from a systematic standpoint because there's a general principle that we don't punish criminals for uncharged conduct. There's a mechanism in place to deal with that, which is to bring additional charges and the government either has to prove their case or an accused has to admit guilt with those. So anytime somebody is punished for acts that aren't charged is a little bit troubling to me as well. And finally, one of the other aspects that the government spent a lot of time arguing about was the you can increase a sentence in federal court if there is loosely obstruction of justice involved. To me, that almost smacks of double dipping because harboring a fugitive has inherently within that charge, you are obstructing justice. So to then magnify the penalty based on additional obstruction of justice 
seems to me to sort of be double dipping under the same peniological principle. And I'm a little worried that that may have also happened here. So looking forward in this case, there are a couple of residual issues floating around that are interesting. One is the government has claimed that they have no interest in having Ms. Gregg testify against Mr. Bulger. Despite their saying that publicly, there has been some sentiment that maybe their intention is still to literally slap a subpoena on her and have her testify against Mr. Bulger when his trials come up. That raises several interesting issues because at that point she would have the ability to assert her Fifth Amendment privilege not to testify against herself, and I think she would have a very valid Fifth Amendment privilege, especially considering that the government claimed there were other crimes she committed or contributed to that were uncharged. So if they chose to try to do that, I think she would have a very compelling constitutional shield in the Fifth Amendment. And then the government's next play, if they wanted her to testify, is they would have to grant her immunity in order to do that. And I don't know if they would bother doing that, because it seems to me that they believe they have a very strong case against Mr. Bulger without her cooperation. Another sort of residual issue that doesn't seem to have been finalized in this case is the issue of whether Ms. Gregg can profit from her involvement in this case. Early on in the case, that came out, and the defense said explicitly that she had no intention of doing that. But it doesn't seem to have been a specific result of the sentencing, so there may be some argument out there that she could still somehow profit from her knowledge of what happened. But I'm guessing that because they relied on that in their sentencing memorandum that she would follow through with that piece. So looking forward, it's a fascinating case and a fascinating result in terms of what the ultimate sentence was, but raises some both moral and legal issues in my mind about what are appropriate things to look at when you impose a sentence on somebody. Do you just sentence them for what they committed and relevant factors, or are you allowed to sort of bootstrap on what somebody who committed more serious crimes, who that person may have aided in being a fugitive? And my own personal view is that this may have been a case where the individual defendant was overpunished and punished for certain factors and conduct that I'm not so sure serve legitimate peniological means. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.